Insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome back to the Change Healthcare Podcast. I'm Tim Suther. I'm the Senior Vice President for Data Solutions here at uh, Change Healthcare. Today, we're uh, really fortunate to be talking to Dr. John Halamka, who's the president of the Mayo uh, uh, Clinic platform. We're going to talk about uh, social determinants of health and predictive models, topics that John and I have frequently talked about in the past, been subject to blogs and the like. Um, it's really a treat to have uh, John here with us today. He's got a an impressive background. He, he got his uh, undergrad degree from Stanford, medical degree from UCSF, master's from uh, Berkeley. He's taught at Harvard. He's worked at Beth Israel uh, prior to joining uh, the Mayo Clinic. He was instrumental in uh, forming the COVID Healthcare Coalition uh, and the VCI uh, initiative, which uh, promotes vaccine passports in this uh, country. He's a frequent blogger with the Dispatch for the Digital Health uh, Frontier. And just, we're really fortunate to have uh, John uh, uh, with us here today. So John, to kick us off here, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey, the work you've done, and a lot of it has ended up with uh, digital health and social determinants. So tell us the John Halamka story. Well, absolutely. So I grew up in a working class family. And back in the 1960s, though it's hard to believe, there was such a thing as free range children. And what did I do? In the 60s and early 70s, I rode my bicycle to the dumpsters of defense contractors and pulled out the integrated circuits they had thrown away. Because back in the 60s and 70s, there was actually no security around these sorts of things. So I taught myself analog and digital logic and then microprocessors, machine language, assembly language, and higher level languages. So by about 14, I had what I'll call my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of competency in technology. But yet my passion was biology and life sciences. So I had this crazy idea in high school that what if I made a career that brought together technology and service to patients by doing is this dual educational process of medical school and engineering. And then the rest is history. And it turned out a reasonable choice was made. That's a, an amazing story. I can't think of uh, too many free range children that end up with a uh, career uh, as you have in, uh, in uh, biology. Now, your, your journey has really touched on uh, many of the preeminent institutions uh, in this country. And now, much of what you write about and talk about is, uh, is focused on digital health and social determinants. How, how did you get there as part of your journey? Well, so interesting that I have always served the underserved. If you actually look at all of my medical training, I spent a lot of my clinical rotations at San Francisco General Hospital and Highland Hospital in Oakland, California, then did residency at Harbor UCLA Medical Center, which is in Carson. And my passion was as follows. If imagine it's a Sunday night and you have a patient who is, let's say, underserved, may have issues of literacy, and they need placement in a rehabilitation situation. Do you have, at least again, thinking back to the 80s, early 90s, 
trying to find rehabilitation services for an underserved person on a weekend is nearly impossible, completely impossible. So what I did is I wrote a book while I was uh, a resident in emergency medicine on how it is we can bring social services to the underserved. And it was really about how to navigate all these various government and industrial systems to find the right setting for the right care at the right cost for the right person. And, and so I've spent just a huge amount of effort trying to make sure there is equity. And remember that equity is not equality. Equity may mean there are those in society who will need more services, special attention, and be lifted up. A very quick story that illustrates that point. While I was a resident in emergency medicine, a woman came in comatose and she was quite disheveled, uh, clearly had had a very hard life. And when we treated her, we had to hydrate her. We had to you know, give her so, some various kinds of agents to help her regain consciousness. She told me she was a professionally trained violinist. And of course, the nursing staff said, yeah, uh-huh. No, don't think so. So in that usual way, because I had focused on this equity issue, I was able to discovered that she had a substance abuse issue and that she needed rehabilitation. And I was able on a weekend evening to place her into a rehabilitation center. Eight weeks later, a woman shows up at triage in a black cocktail dress with a violin and sits in the emergency department of the county hospital and plays the violin for eight hours. And it's that kind of event that makes you realize this equity issue is very real. That's an amazing story. And uh, it strikes me, John, that you were onto something early uh, that is now commonly discussed in, in healthcare, which is not only health equity, but understanding how utilization, access, and outcomes vary by social determinants of health. And, you and I have, uh, have talked about this and written about this uh, at, uh, at length. And of course, our respective institutions are, are supporting research uh, into that area. So it, it's commonly noted that uh, social determinants affect up to 80% of, uh, of health outcomes. Yet, despite that, uh, the experience in the real world is decidedly mixed. What, what's your perspective on why that is? Health is clearly multifactorial, right? It's phenotype, it's genotype, it's exposome. And I realize exposome may not be precisely a term of art, though you do see it in the literature on occasion. It's where you live, the air you breathe, the water you drink, the food you eat, the education you have, the opportunities you're afforded, even your sense of well-being. Psychoneuroimmunology would say if you feel good, it is probably supportive of your immune system and your health. So given that it's so multifactorial, it's very challenging to determine causality. And again, this is not exactly a social determinants of health example, but it just shows how hard things are to figure out. So I have been a vegan for 25 years. I have a body mass index of 21. 
I run a organic farm where I'm literally exercising between Zoom calls, you know, six hours a day. And yet, I, as an almost 60-year-old person, my HDL and LDL last week were measured and they just crossed the edge of normal. And my primary care physician said, there is nothing you can do about your exposome. There is nothing you can do. In fact, you were dealt these cards at birth in your genome and therefore pravastatin, 20 milligrams, that's what you need, right? And so as we look at the total picture of a person, we have to understand all of these elements that combine together to create health. And social determinants of health are an extraordinary contributor to outcomes. Here's another quick story for you. We had a gentleman uh, when I was in Boston, uh, who every August when it's 99 degrees and 99% humidity in Boston, would come to the emergency department with a, a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbation, COPD, couldn't breathe. Well, if it's 99 and 99% humidity, any of us would have a hard time breathing and with COPD, especially worse. It would cost on average about $20,000 to treat him in a hospitalized setting. And of course, if you think about it, incentives in the past were aligned so that more care means better reimbursement, which means you know the institutions would tend to want to deliver sick care rather than wellness. Whereas now we know, especially in value-based purchasing, that you need to look at the whole person. You need to understand social determinants of health. What is their living situation and their support situation? Well, ultimately, because now about 80% of the care in the Boston area is value-based purchasing, pay for quality. We bought him an air conditioner, $399 at Home Depot. And do you know that he has not had a single hospitalization? And he's alive and doing fine, right? Since we adjusted his living environment to make sure that he would stay healthy. And it's exactly this kind of intervention that should drive our healthcare spend, not just more hospitalizations and procedures. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. Uh, I think you framed it um, uh, very uh, accurately. There, you know, our what we think of as a healthcare system is really a sick care system, and the more emphasis that we have on taking steps to actually avoid. Uh, bad health outcomes, uh, the better off. So that sounds like that $399 was a, a very uh, worthwhile investment. But social determinants is a topic that gets a lot of buzz. And there are right ways to, um, you know, to leverage that information and wrong ways. And you gave a great example, which is what really matters is the moment of truth. It isn't about the mythical averages. It, it's what matters for that particular uh, COPD patient. And hey, he really needed a, an air conditioner. Now, you and I uh, spent some time a few weeks ago on a, on a blog uh, uh, post on, on your blog talking about uh, lessons from the front on what works and, and what uh, doesn't work. Can you kind of reprise based on your experience you know, kind of the critical success factors that if people want to put social determinants to work, what, what should they do? Right, well, so, so a couple of guiding principles. 
which is as one looks at the explosion of digital health, what you say is, oh, I know, I'm gonna give everybody an Apple watch and suddenly we're going to measure telemetry and everybody is gonna be healthy, it's gonna be wonderful. Well, recognize there are a whole lot of folks who actually would prefer not to wear a monitor or wouldn't be technologically comfortable with the device that you give them. So you need to meet them at their level of comfort, literacy and expectation, delivering the service that is going to make their life and their uh, particular circumstances better. I, I think Tim, you, you may remember that a couple of years ago, I brought some engineers from a very big tech company to visit me in Boston where they went to a Medicaid facility and they asked an elderly homeless gentleman, what was his favorite wearable? And he said, socks, <laughs> right? And so this sort of illustrates that we have to look at the whole patient and understand what intervention is going to work for that particular person. And it could be they have food insecurity or they have issues of safety or they have issues of access to the system and need additional help with transportation. And these are the kinds of things that you hope we can evaluate for each person. Now, it is hard at times because our electronic health records tend to be very incomplete in the area of social determinants of health. Or if they are complete, I would argue the data is not very credible. That is, uh, folks who fill in that data might in fact put in routine answers. And so, I mean, this is again, sort of funny example, um, by purely happenstance, years and years ago in the self-built electronic health record at Beth Israel Deaconess, if you simply skipped a variety of these fields, they auto-filled with certain determinants of health. And this is again, sort of silly and it was a mistake and it was corrected, but the default for ethnicity was Haitian Creole. And so we had like 50% of our patients who were Haitian Creole. And it's just, again, it illustrates the challenge. One has to look often at alternative sources of data. And this could be car ownership records, property tax records, school districting, where are the markets, right? And this is a really interesting area of investigation. Mayo has recently published a paper on something called the Houses Index which says, if I can look at the address where you live, I can actually tell you something about your neighborhood. Is it a food desert? What are the crime statistics? What are the educational opportunities? What's the general level of income, education, literacy? And using that data help at least at a high level understand what some of the issues might be so that when we deal with an individual patient level, we're better able to come to the uh, care process with something useful for them. And one last example, as you know, because you helped me with this some uh, weeks ago, we did a presentation to the state of Kentucky. And what we discovered in the state of Kentucky, there are some zip codes that have wonderful public transportation, top quality primary care, excellent access to clean food and water, and some zip codes that lack cellular phone connections, right? And so again, as we start to think of what solution is going to work, putting a highly advanced digital solution into a zip code that has no cellular service is not going to be a successful intervention. You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're enabling a better, more efficient healthcare system. 
Whether you need to improve operational efficiency, optimize financial performance, or enhance the consumer experience, we offer the industry insight and innovative technology to help you meet your objectives. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. Yeah, it's a, a great reminder that different uh, people experience healthcare uh, differently. And I'm taken by your uh, Haitian Creole uh, autofill example into the EMR. You know, the other dimension that often gets in the way of that is people can be reluctant to reveal their information because they fear it might be used uh, against them. So the, the overall proposition that social determinants uh, ought to be best captured in an EMR, I think is one that has to be tested against other sources of information about those people like you've done with the, uh, the houses index. So uh, really, really appreciate that context on that. The other thing that you've been doing, I think that's really noteworthy, is oftentimes people think about social determinants as you know, filling in the gaps at the moment of truth. And that's certainly very, very valuable. But what you've done is you're also doing um, advanced things to incorporate it into predictions about uh, future healthcare uh, consumption or, or acuity. Could you describe for the listeners a little bit of what you're doing there and perhaps some guidance for those that are so inclined in, in their organizations? So I think all of us know that artificial intelligence is simply probabilistic statistics, right? What it says is, if you've given me a training set and now give me a novel patient, based on that training set, I can predict something about that novel patient. So what that means is these statistics are only as good as the training set you give it. And so Mayo Clinic recently took some very well-known algorithms that had been validated in the field and stratified their, uh, a validation test case by social determinants of health. And what we discovered is when you started looking at the lowest economic quartile of socioeconomic status, the algorithms break down totally. And let's just hypothesize why. So this particular algorithm was prediction of pediatric asthmatic exacerbations. And you can just sort of guess that generally pediatric asthma might occur when the pollen count is high or in cold and flu season or RSV season, or there may be you know, some other issues like humidity or temperature. What if a patient lives in a dusty household what if a patient has an economic status such that they can't fill their medications or are not compliant with those medications? So you recognize the issues are gonna be very different between the lowest quartile and the highest quartile of socioeconomic status. So it's really important that we do what I call local tuning. And that is a generalized algorithm based on the million average people isn't necessarily gonna work so well for that single individual in front of you today. And that's why it really needs to be adjusted for socioeconomic status and social determinants of health. Yeah, it's a trust but verify, uh, isn't it? And uh, you know, both of us have spent a lot of time thinking about how to unpack the mythical averages about patient uh, experience to really understand what is affecting an individual patient's uh, uh, circumstances. So really, really love that story. Um, so your entire career has been one focused on innovation 
and uh, the number of things that you've been able to create in advance for uh, the industry is uh, is truly breathtaking. And, and I think the uh, industry owes you a, a debt of gratitude. As you sit back and reflect on that, and you know, with all the work that you're doing to promote uh, digital health and social determinants, what do you think's next uh, in our industry? What, what really inspires you? And, and, and what's the call to action you would give to you know, the balance of, uh, of healthcare? Well, let me comment on that in a couple of different ways. So I was recently in a European country where the health minister of the European country said, we want innovation with no risk. Right. And I would argue there is no such thing as innovation without risk. And so this means we set guardrails. Right. There are certain things one will never, ever do. Right. Because of issues of privacy and security and ethics and such. But what that means, though, is that there are going to be a number of things we're going to have to test and they may or may not work. Right? And so one of the examples of Mayo Clinic Platform is we asked the question, could you deliver serious and complex care in a non-traditional setting, which forces you to analyze the social determinants of health the second you walk in the front door, right? Is this a safe house in which to have hospital level care? Do they have telecommunications capability in that zip code, right? We can use things like LTE modems or 5G modems or whatever, but do they even have that? What are the support structures? What are transportation requirements? What's safety in these kinds of things? So again, Mayo sometimes thinks, start small, think big, move fast. We start with one patient, right? Oh, let's deliver, in this particular case, it was an 87-year-old with hyponatremia, serum sodium of 102, we assessed social determinants of health, seemed like a reasonable candidate, support structures were there. And after we delivered the care successfully with good quality and safety and outcomes, we then did a debrief and said, well, how did that work? What about supply chain and staffing and how would you scale this? We went from one patient to 10 patients and then 10 to 50, then 50 to 100 and then to 1,000. And as of this morning, we're over 3,000 patients who've been treated with serious and complex illness in their homes. When we started that journey, we had no idea if it would even work. And the end result is we reduced readmissions 25%. We've had amazing patient satisfaction and the same outcomes and quality with reduced cost. So again, sort of the notion is we're gonna see more virtual care we're gonna see it delivered in non-traditional settings. We're gonna see more data types, more remote patient monitoring, and we're gonna see the use of more algorithms, which we hope are validated so that they deliver something of utility to that single patient in front of you. The next six quarters, and I never say five years, the next six quarters are gonna see immense change in the post-COVID new normal, and we're just gonna to have to accept we're going to be navigating without a map. There will be risks taken, but no patients will be harmed. I'm uh, really taken by the comment of, um, you know, of someone who wanted to have innovation with, uh, with no risk. And I, I chuckled a little bit uh, off uh, of mic on that because I've met a lot of people like that. And one of the challenges that we have as an industry when we are 
gathering more information about social determinants, uh, the color of the skin, preferred language, cultural uh, affiliations, uh, economic stability. You know, we run into the circumstance where our uh, data governance mechanisms also need to up their game. Uh, one of the, uh, the challenges that we often face is when you have all this data that is combined in a way that has never before been had, how do we make sure that the data stays on side with the regulatory environment, notably HIPAA, uh, but also, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. How do we make sure that the use of this data you know, is, is fair, is ethical use, uh, adheres to ethical use standards. And it strikes me that many organizations are long on data governance and short on systems that actually ensure that that data governance policy is adhered to. So I think in addition to all the awesome innovation that's in front of us over the next six quarters and beyond, it strikes me that organizations also need to up their game to make sure that the data is used in the way that they intend it to, uh, to be used with. Do you, do you feel the same way or do you feel differently? Well, completely agree. And so uh, Mayo Clinic has approached this with what I call a multi-layer defense, right? And for the listeners, imagine you're in a medieval castle and they've got folks shooting arrows. Oh, but they also have hot oil, tall walls, big gates and a moat. <laughs> Right. And, and so one has to ask the question, if you're going to protect the privacy of data, fine, we can de-identify it. Well, the problem with de-identified data is linkage. If you de-identify data and then allow folks to relink the data to other external data sets, they could probably re-identify some of the de-identified people. So we've said world-class de-identification, no data linkage, kept in a secure container where auditing, access control and use is monitored and controlled by Mayo Clinic. So in effect, what we'd say is a third party can bring tooling into our environment and exercise that tooling against the de-identified data, but they can't take the de-identified data. And in that respect, it's as you say, we have reinforced through technological means the governance and controls we've established by policy. And this data behind glass, this multi-layer defense is the only way that we will work with third parties at this point in history. Yeah, it's the Hotel California of analytics, isn't it? The data can check in, but it can never leave. So uh, John, this has been a, a fantastic uh, conversation. We are oh so privileged to have uh, a little bit of uh, your time here uh, this afternoon. Um, you know, for our listeners here, uh, make sure to check the uh, show notes for links to uh, resources and contact information, and certainly stay tuned to the uh, Change Healthcare podcast for more shows. And by the way, I definitely encourage you to uh, go check out the Dispatch for Digital Health Frontiers. It is a constant flow of uh, great ideas from, uh, from John. Uh, for more information on Change Healthcare, uh, please go to changehealthcare.com. I'm Tim Suther. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. And thank you to uh, our guest, John Holomka. Thank you, John. Thank you. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system through the power of the Change Healthcare platform. We provide data and analytics-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, 
administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the U.S. healthcare system. Learn more at changehealthcare.com.